Thumbrail, yeah, I mean, I guess we should talk to everyone why we started this podcast and why we felt the need to 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 do this and and yeah, you know, a little bit about us, I guess. You go first. <laughs> Tell me about yourself. So myself, um, well, look, uh, you know, I'm Anderson West. I'm a filmmaker that lives in Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, as you can tell, I am not originally from Stoke-on-Trent, England. I am from Florida, 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 United States. I've been living here for over 20 years and I love making films. I've been making films since high school and I, you know, went to college in Stoke-on-Trent to, you know, had a, did a media studies a-level, fell in love with film even more, made like some fake John Woo <laughs> uh, type stuff with my friend Junehead, who should still be a filmmaker, Junehead, if you hear this, you should be like making action films, but anyways. Um, uh, and then I went to university, Stafford University around 2007, and I met a guy with, he didn't have a beard then, um, but I... Hadn't found uh, myself then, I discovered who I was. I didn't realize what? that I was actually all that time. I was a man with a beard. Wait. <laughs> yeah, you, you were. Yeah, the um, the start of a beautiful friendship is the what I think I said to you. Yeah, um, back in two thousand and seven. In Keswick. Um, and so uh, you know, you know, me and Mark have known each other since then, uh, since university, and you know, we've been making films ever since together. You know. Uh, we, you know, we graduated. Obviously, Marco said when he graduated, but we graduated in 2010. Um, and yeah, we've, 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 you know, we're friends. Obviously, that's the most important things. You know, obviously, sometimes I think that gets lost in the industry. Sometimes you're like, oh, collaborators. No, you're my friend. That also happens to be like my main filmmaking bro, right? So, um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I've worked, I'm a I'm a director producer now. Um, you know, I, I occasional cinematographer, but I'm I'm starting to leave that behind. Uh, director producer, I've been director producing for twelve years now. Um, I was at a production company called Fuzzy Duck for ten years as a director dr director producer, and then I had a film, which is a fancy way to say I had a lot of work to do and to look after a team of five. But I've been freelance, a freelance director for the last year and a half now and actually starting a production company uh depends on called scenes Jeruti films and mm. you just you ju you're just launching the website right this week yeah so we that's the idea this week the we'll launch a website social media get our names out there you know um you know mark's gonna do some work with us as well i've started out with another filmmaking for well friend who also makes films with me, uh, and his name is Andy Salomonchek. So, but enough about me. Um, obviously, obviously, going to these podcasts, we'll, we'll start more. We'll talk more about each other. Talk more about our pasts. But I'm gonna hand it over to my friend Marky Mark. It's my turn. My my story never sounds as exciting as your story. I should probably go first from now on because you moved from America, and that's way more exciting than moving from the north of England to. Somewhere else depends. in the north of England. It depends what kind of story. Depends yeah. on the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, we had a very similar story, I think. We both went to college, both studied, like, mainly practical filmmaking courses, right? Yours was also quite practical. You actually made yeah. films. 
and that was in like 2006 so this was like we're back on like standard def mini dv you would record the clips and then do your time codes and so it was a long time ago and then i went to university where i'm at anderson staffordshire university which was another really practical film course where we basically just made a lot of films um and and good films as well it was like right at the start of the our final year was right at the start of like the the dslr craze so we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about that so it was a real fun time i think for filmmakers that because you kind of got these this new technology that let you shoot stuff that looked really great so yeah we we just kind of it was just a very enjoyable time i mean when you go to uni you basically just your job is to make films and it's like when you get out of uni done it's not that easy to to just have a job where your whole you the whole time you're supposed to be just dedicated towards making this film that you want to make as well so yeah that's where we met i graduated in 2010 and then i've kind of worked together over the past what what's it been now 13 years just been working together basically yeah. non-stop throughout that whole time just anderson worked for fuzzy duck i worked for fuzzy duck for a bit we both and then just went back on a more freelance basis for 13 years shooting stuff and we have shot probably the most together out of everyone i've ever worked with because i've been freelance yeah. for quite a long time so the longest i've spent at a company is probably a year so fuzzy duck is definitely the company that i have you know worked for the most in my time yeah i said sorry and then yeah that brings us pretty much up to date i'm actually working part-time still for fuzzy duck um, and then freelancing the rest of the time uh, i work doing editing and cinematography i don't think i actually ever said this whole time that that's what i do i'm a cinematographer mainly and i also edit um freelance and for um fuzzy duck part-time as well and that brings us pretty much up to date right where you've just you just left fuzzy duck i'm still there part-time and anderson is just starting his own company yeah, and so... I'm, uh, and I'm... I'm at Fuzzy Duck, where Anderson got me in and then left me, basically. He did come, <laughs> <and> he come <laughs> back and then he did a run. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, um, look, it's funny how these things work out. You know, I mean... Look, I mean, we'll we'll talk a, lot, you know, a bit about Fuzzy Duck. Look, I worked mm-hmm. for 10 years of my life. Yeah. A third of my life. You know, I haven't worked... You know, I left a year ago, literally two weeks ago. Two year, weeks ago makes a year since I left, and... Wow, we worked somewhere for a time. Already, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to do some singing dance on LinkedIn, saying, "Oh, look, oh, what a, you know what an honor it's been to be yeah. freelance this long." You know, I just, uh, yeah, I hate that stuff. But, um, yeah. So obviously, you know, I don't, you know, obviously my journey now is is different to Fuzzy's, and you know, but um, it did pay a big part of my life, and you know, you know, because anyway, for a third of your lifetime working somewhere i think it is gonna you know be important to you regardless of it's probably what your sound is more dramatic than it is because you still actually do 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 like odd work for fuzzy duck anyways so well, yeah, it's yeah. not like you'll be yeah. the again but no yeah. exactly so i have to be careful i don't slate them on this podcast because they'll be like what oh <laughs> you really good i'm joking i'm joking but um no i'm really Really, like our our connection, one of our big connections. The the reason I think that you know we have had such a long friendship is that we love Kit, right? 
We love <laughs> all the things that are out now that yeah. make it so much easier to do all the things that we were trying so desperately to do. Oh, like oh my years ago, that was virtually impossible, but now you're oh doing and it's it's great time to be a filmmaker. It really is. Look, I mean, let's not be under any illusions, right? It's about what you write in your scripts, and it's about what's on screen. That's the most important part of this filmmaking process. You know, it's why the it was why we're having a a, a a screenwriters guild strike right now. That's yeah, obviously it doesn't it doesn't really affect us at this current point, but you know, hopefully in the future, we'll be like, oh. Yes, they need to protect writers more because we're part of the 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 Writers Guild Association. But um it's what what you what you're making and that should always that should always take your story or take your the way you want to tell it. You know, that is the king. The story is king. We know that, that cliche phrase because it's true. Mm. But equip but without equipment, it's very difficult to do that thing. And I think Coming from our background, you know, yes, I've directed and produced commercials. Yes, I've directed and produced short films. But, you, you know, it's, it's, I'm not at the high, high end stuff yet. So I still have to do quite a lot myself and I still have to know how all these things work so I can actually say, oh, this is what I want to try. And is that affordable? And, you know, years ago, some certain things like, you know, getting a decent tracking shot. You know, um, you know, as a Wally Dolly or, a, you know, a really, you know, a Kessler slider or whatever. Now you have so much not even, you know, Kessler slider, I think is the kind of things we'd aspire to have. Yeah. But because we didn't have that budget and didn't have that money to buy, you, know, you just kind of. We had the easy rig, the, the, the steering wheel with the camera in there. Oh, the big rig. The fig rig. The fig rig. That's the fig, fig rig. rig. Yes. And that was like. You know, you could net. There was no gimbals. There were handheld steady cams, but they were like they were balance the balance kind. They didn't have any like motorized support. It was just yeah. you handheld it, and it might give you a bit stable footage. But but we didn't have anything near what a gimbal or a drone could do do now. I mean, can you imagine oh, a drone? A drone. Yeah. I I remember the first time we used a drone in a dro- job. We used a fantastic company. Shout out to Kestrel Cam. Um, Duncan and Steve, lovely, lovely bunch of guys. They're based in um, um, Cheshire, but they, you know, work for BBC and things like uh, BBC, other company, you know, loads of other companies. But like, I remember the first time we used it, it was like, um, wow, it's like, it's that view, that point of view you wouldn't normally see. You know, I think at that point it was just you have to hire a helicopter for yeah. five grand a day. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Fuzzy Duck did that before. Before I got there, they did a, a shoot where they had to do that. And so that was, oh no, then we did one, I remember 2013, we were filming, um, well. I, w- I went up in a helicopter for Fuzzy Duck once with an EX-3. The, the idea was for me to aim the EX-3 out of the helicopter and get a shot. And it was this little rickety old helicopter. And I mean, you can't zoom in with an EX-3 and get a stable shot from a helicopter. I don't, I don't know what the plan was, but it was a nice ride, but we didn't get any usable footage. <laughs> I think it's the things we used to. It's the things you had to do, yeah, because they weren't possible, mm-hmm. you know, for the budget. You know, I think that's that's what gets lost in the discourse now. It's like if you have an idea and you have a half decent budget, you know, and half decent. I'm not talking million pound or whatever. I'm talking, mm-hmm. you know, you have a nice. You can own all this stuff. You can own it. I think that's the that's the thing that's so so surprising. I think 
talk, you know, I think you should talk to the guys. Obviously, you know, you're, you know, we're going to get the plug in there. You're a red owner operator. Yeah. You know, uh, again, uh, again, again. And this is what I was going to say. I, in fact, I'll segue into that. Um, so obviously 5d revolution, I think, um, to be honest, my friend Lee DeVille, you know, our friend, um, yeah. he was probably the first, one of the first filmmakers in the world to use the 5d on a short, I think, um, with this one, I can't remember the name of it, Lee, I'm sorry, but it was a brilliant film. Um, uh, it, at, at was, oh, it, was it? it was about a guy who worked in a supermarket. Yes, it was. Uh, I can't remember. That's so annoying. Lee, with a hashtag, uh, I will, you know, can we say his uh, thing? You know. Something about the end so, of the world. Was it waiting for the end of the world or something? Yes, it was. That was it. Yeah, that's that's it. Um, the, yes, the, I, he's really so brilliant. I remember it. Very oh, it was a random film. Well shot. It was a beautiful film. film. Well shot. Lee's a great director as well. Um, but that was really the first one to you to use this. Yes, it was. Can't. Yeah. This camera that in the size of your hand, you could get this wonderful image, this great depth of field, which mm-hmm. we've been trying to trick was we had these one-third size sensor cameras it was called the J, uh, jvc hd hd 110 was it hd 20 20 i think or maybe yeah. 10 like you said but yeah with the lens adapter it was we, we didn't even use the lens adapters at that point it was just the yeah, it was just the because they they we were looking remember we were looking into it yeah that we were looking into it because um at, the, at that point we're talking this is 2000 summer 2008 2009 2009 is when Lee made that film. So, so we would we were looking around those solutions, and what that camera did—it's a camera—but it made you feel like any idea was possible. And in reality, all the ideas that we had, we could have done with the JVC one HD 110, which is you know, you know, a, a, pro, a prosumer camcorder with a broadcast style um, lens. Zoom, zoom out. You did up to 720p and HDV. I probably still have some of those tapes in my loft that we shot. And it was just, it was obviously you could do with that. But there was a psychological thing like, whoa, this camera is so small. We could put it this side. We could put it in the floor. We could put it inside the car and it wouldn't be too much ringing. Oh, it's wonderful. Or I could put it on a fig rig and run around London in a real profile without needing a big crew. I mean, we weren't even thinking about how do we put full, full focus or anything like that. It was just, uh, let's just get that on the, oh, the image. Worries. Well, the least of our worries was pulling focus on, on, that, on that camera. How, how do we do it? I mean, now people are like, oh, no, out of focus is impossible. Like, no, you've been pulling from the barrel. But it wasn't, the camera didn't do anything technically that the HD 110 couldn't do, or we couldn't have done with the HD 110. But what it, it made us feel, it made us feel like we had a, something to make a canvas you know something to to write on a canvas that a a, a brush that made anything seem possible it, all of a sudden and let's go to the lake district and get a gym shot on the side of a mountain or let's uh like i say run around london in the london tube yeah. with with this camera and a chase scene to make it look empty make the city look empty mm-hmm. or um film in a classroom with you know in a in a, in a cheeky commit a uh, 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 a school comedy about a teacher getting drinking a coffee coffee cup on the pee for the fee <laughs> but like we could have done those ideas with any camera with the camera we had but it's just it created this 
yeah. idea that anything was possible. It inspired you, didn't it? I think that's sometimes what Kit does. It just it it inspires you because you can do things that you couldn't have usually done. Like, you know, those were DSLR cameras. So back then they were treated as such, which meant your permission to use those cameras was the same as the permission to get photography. So I could film on the underground for thirty pounds with a crew of up to five providing I didn't use a tripod. You could never film on the underground anymore for that price. So, and it was the same around London, you know, when you were using those kind of cameras back then, you weren't treated like a film crew. You were treated like a photography crew. So the access was there. And like you said, filming in a car, like a camera, less dangerous. You can mount it closer to the window. But then also on top of that, you know, it taught us probably the biggest thing was lenses. And you don't realize... Yes how much there is to learn about lenses, about aperture, what that does to the image, like how you can change things with this lens. Because when you were on the HD 110s, it was obviously a zoom lens and, you know, you could go to a widest point and the tightest point, but outside of that, you were limited. And they weren't particularly wide, if I remember correctly. They they didn't give you the widest field of view. So like you said, filming in a... Do we have an adapter at the front? I think I we had a... We did. But... If I remember correctly, that adapter did barely anything to the actual image. It, it gave you maybe like an extra tiny amount. Um, so it was like it oh, and filming in the dark as well, because obviously these lenses would go to a much lower aperture than our fixed, our zoom lens would, which was, I think, probably around five, six, if that was the lowest it would go. So we could film in dark cars and we could film at night and we could, you know, just ho- it opened up the realms of possibilities to what we could do. And that made us come up with different ideas. So having better tools led to you being more creative because you weren't limited by the equipment and you should never be li- like limited by equipment. You should be able to try and get whatever you want. Obviously you are limited by certain things, but the, the new revolution in those cameras really did kind of, they just started something and they just made it way more accessible for the masses to create content that looked like you were seeing in the cinema on a budget of nothing. I think that's, I think that's the key there with this camera, um, with that camera, what it did. It was, I ne- you know, I think we had a, maybe a handful of films that look, and obviously look, you know, we're talking about second year, year, second and first year university students. You know, I'm not talking about people who are seasoned as DPs or know what they're doing, but like, you know, we were still learning. So obviously that process of learning your, your things aren't going to look exactly how you want it to look like you want it to look in the end, but you're getting, you're getting closer. But the thing about the HD 110, it was just the low light. Yes. The low light capability. Oh, I'd never be able to do that because I need big lights. And then you, you know, you have to use the big tungsten and you have to think about how much we put onto a, onto a circuit. If we put two of those two K's, then we're in a situation where, oh no, it's going to make the circuit board switch off and, you gotta, you know, that'd be part of your risk assessment. And all of a sudden, this camera with natural light looks amazing. You can, under a street light, oh, you know, you have an idea, as you did, you know, filming a um, a pickup, a, a hitchhiker being picked up in like a almost complete darkness, only lit with, with really street lights. I, I I think there was a did we we didn't have handheld LEDs when we had a panel an LED panel I think did we have an LED panel I remember using the car lights and draining the battery 
So maybe not. I'm not sure if we had a panel or not. I think for the, because I, I don't think, I wasn't there for the digging. I think the digging shot you did as a pickup, but the, the car stuff, obviously, you know, we did um, together. No, I know we didn't have a panel because back then, do you remember that the university bought those lights for lighting cars that plugged into the cigarette lighter? Yeah. But the problem was the lights were too big to put anywhere and the, they still need the cable dangling down the middle. So it was like, it was just, so yeah, I don't, I don't think we had battery lights back then. I think it was, it was car lights that we used. Yeah, and, and street lights for the, for certain. It was yeah. just like, you know, at that point, back then, really, we weren't. I mean, we were ready to craft light. We were just getting an exposure, and you know, obviously, our stories and their, and their their ambition. That's what really I felt was was what really made those films pop, right? And I I think. You know, it just again, yeah, Mark. Thank you for reminding me. That camera just opened up possibilities, and all of a sudden, when you're looking at these, you know, other film festivals or other short film festivals, and um, you're looking at the short films, and you're thinking, "Wow, how are we going to get to that?" And I know, obviously, you know, there's production design, acting, location. That's a big, and obviously, the story is a big part of that. But the camera does help, and and back then, the difference was absolutely massive it was massive i think you know it was only really 35 mil and 16 mil films you would see and that was obviously very expensive you you know you'd have to rent one from in manchester a 16 mil camera super 16 then obviously the processing costs of sending the film off to be processed and we did it once right after uni i shot a film on 16 mil you know cool and you felt like you're making a movie because i but like as a process of getting the story done quickly and cheaply, it wasn't because obviously you'd have to send the, 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 the negative off to get processed and then they send you back a hard drive. Oh no, it was a DV cam tape then yeah. with it. And then you would, then you would ingest that. But we it was a digital how to like expose film. We hadn't learned, we didn't even no. really know what an F stop was until we got no cameras and started it's... figuring out what that F stop related to. It was a lot of trial and error. It was discovering, like, how how do you get it to look, like, out of focus in the background? How How is... And then you, you like, obviously figure it out. Because, you know, YouTube wasn't a thing back then. It was a... It was a not film. for film. It wasn't... Not for film. Like, not for... Yeah, you know, not a filmmaking it was, resource. It was Vimeo, right? And Vimeo still was in its early phase of, like, of being a filmmaker's... And that was really more for you to display. There wasn't really the tutorial stuff there no. back then. So it you were... It's trial and error. You know, you were you were trying to figure out this stuff. Nobody really... People realized how big DSLRs were going to be. But it took a while before it was adopted by, like, movie studios and stuff like that. I think probably Drive, right? Drive was one of the first films that used shots from a 5D. In, and that they were in a car. Because, obviously, in a car at night, low light, easy to mount. Yeah. So, yeah, you just... I think there was that resource of, of finding that stuff back then. I think that's the thing. I, I do miss that time. You know, I don't want to romanticize it too much because, you know, obviously things are easier now. But it, like, yeah. obviously, you got to set the scene of the 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 the, the you know the idea made us sh strive for new technology. We're like, how mm -hmm. can we actually do this? I think um, also Terminator Salvation used some shots from the five D or the yeah. a promo from it. I remember Shane Herbert. I used to follow him quite a bit. Um, and, you know, obviously he's got a great film, 
platform for for resort filmmaking resources but and he talked a lot about making the 5d and are using it as a you know digital negative and da la la and oh there's the workflow to make that 8-bit codec really fire so i'm doing a t i'm doing a uh don't sue me general but i'm drinking a pressure <laughs> but i think um it really it was really interesting time and i, and I think the you're right the foundations f-stop what's that focal length mean because mc was cheaper to buy primes than a full zoom you know the zoom was still quite expensive the 24 to 70. we didn't Whereas know what prime was really until we got no. dslrs because I remember buying a 50 and putting it on and thinking, why is this not zoomed? Like, where's the zooming? And, yes. you know, I was I was an amateur, clearly, but I, I just didn't know because, you know, only photographers really had DSLRs. And, yeah, it's just like, you just I just learned so much from that revolution that it's just kind of, I never would have learned without it. I don't even really think the lecturers knew, to be honest. I feel like we learned yeah. a lot of this stuff ourselves and it was like, which is university, right? Self-directed learning. But still it was like, you know, it was, it just, it was different to things now. There, there was no one there that had done it first for you to kind of, apart from Philip Bloom, who really only shot nice little oh, videos, well, talked yeah. briefly about stuff. Because, you know, I won't go into it in too much detail, but the whole 30 frames thing before they even released 25 frames. Oh, for the, the first one yeah. That was a big deal because you don't really shoot 30 frames in the UK. So it's like, that was a whole issue. I worked on, on the film that you you spoke about. Purely my job was to convert the entire film from 30 frames to 25 frames. Because that wasn't easy back then either. That's not something you could do as easy as you can do that now. Because the reason it's easy to do now is because people needed to start doing it because of these cameras. Because we were working with all these different frame rates in... You know, Premiere never used to let you use this different different frame rates on the same timeline. It was we weren't even using Premiere; we were using Final Cut Pro. I was, Seven, yeah. I, like I was on Premiere before I went to Final Cut, and then I went back to Premiere after the Final Cut Seven shut down, and I, I didn't move to Premiere uh, Final Cut X. But yeah, it's it was just difficult back then. Things were things needed converting, and yeah. It was a nightmare, and there just weren't the. It wasn't built into these applications. It was random applications that you could get that would. Someone had figured it out, and yeah, yeah, that's what we did. It's because at the higher end, I'm sure they had tools that were specifically yeah, dedicated to sure. frame rate, you know, conforming or whatever. But we're talking the high end, like Avid yeah. and all these, you know, and Avid and all these big studios that would use this stuff. But there was obviously, as it still exists today. They like to keep things opaque, you know, the mystery about it, you know, who you need to pay 10 grand for this bit of software. And it's like, well, why, why is it, why do we need to? It's pretty simple, yeah. but, um, it's not simple, but obviously it, you know, so you had to find solutions to, to, to make this technology work in the way you wanted it to. Cause yeah, that, that 25, 30 feet to 25 feet. I arrived, bought the 7D just because of 25 feet stuff. And then they released a firmware and I sent back the 7D and bought a 5D. Um, because it just allowed it, you know, it allowed you to do that. Well, the five yeah. was full frame as well, and the seven D wasn't. And full frame was like we spoke about this recently. Full frame, uh, full frame was something that we kind of had with those cameras and didn't realize how big a deal it was because we, I didn't realize that most cinema cameras aren't full frame or definitely weren't full frame back then. They were what close to super thirty five, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, they were so. Uh, they, 
besides the IMAX stuff. Yeah. Oh, and and still say it. You don't get. You still don't get full. Alexa cameras aren't full frame. Apart from the Alexa thirty five, is that full frame? And the LF, the LF, and the L um, yeah. and the LF. So that's a relatively new thing in cinema cameras. And full frame is obviously you use more of the lens, so you get a wider field of view on on a lens if it's a full frame lens. So that was, you know, that was also a learning curve that we kind of learned the difference because some people did have seven Ds and some people had five Ds, and you're like, okay, all right, yeah, this is what a sensor is. This is what a sensor does to the image. Okay, all right. So yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a really good time, and Canon were kind of the only ones doing, doing anything right back then. I mean, Nikon did have some cameras that recorded video, but they were weird frame rates. I the video wasn't very good either. No. The video wasn't very good either, and it was, I think, it was auto features. You couldn't do manual in it. I think, right? You know, we had looked, we looked into that, yeah, to try and find alternatives because obviously 5D was expensive at the time because it, it was, was very expensive. Oh, it was a very good. Um, you know, stills cameras are great stills cameras. Yes, it so was. it was quite still a new is. thing, but it still is. And I think the irony of this whole thing is that we went from a one third size sensor to full frame. Yeah. And it's like, it's almost like we skipped, we skipped, we became spoiled with that image to the point where Super 16 should have been a big deal for us. Yeah. But when I remember shooting Super 16, it was like, oh, the depth of field isn't as much. It still has a, you know, now I appreciate it for different quality. Yeah. But at the time, it was like, oh, it isn't. And then I I hadn't shown the Super 35 camera until I think like the C300. Mm -hmm. And that was like three, four years after. And it was, again, the field of view. It took me a while to get used to being the... the, the and, I've, and we'll talk about, obviously, the benefits of the later part of it, of going back to Super 35 or not back to, because, again, we had skipped it. You yeah. jump straight from one-third size sensor to to full frame, mm -hmm. um, and then obviously, as we got, you know, we started to learn more about different types of lenses and different types of looks. That's where I think you know we start to discover shooting a Super Thirty Five with different other digital cameras, and again, it became accessible because Red started coming out, and yeah, and misfits. I, I, you know, misfits, and before that, Che. I remember renting Che to show in the film theater so we could look at it. And it yeah. was, that was such a massive deal. Um, because again, I was, a, I'm, I'm, I still am a massive geek, but I, I, you know, for cameras but back then I was, you know, it was you and me really that were like, oh, these cameras could do this and stuff. Yeah. We were definitely and, the most into tech because yeah, just tech was obviously it's fun and there was a lot coming out and it was just exciting and obviously oh my goodness we had different we all didn't have the same lenses which was great because then we would all yeah. swap lenses and like use each yeah. other's lenses and batteries as well we would swap because because those batteries those lp6s they would last what not long, 20 minutes. minutes 20 minutes yeah so we would have like everyone would group their batteries together we'd all come with our charged batteries <laughs> ready to, to it. labeled with our little initials on so we wouldn't get them mixed up because <laughs> they were expensive official batteries right you know like six yeah they were or something for an official in six i think we some of us tried to buy because amazon again wasn't that big then so you amazon had to, was yeah not at all like amazon really didn't become a big deal and didn't do the whole prime thing until much much later after we graduated uni 
yeah, we were shipping in stuff from China. I was shipping in like, which I still do, to be honest. And it was back when those companies were first starting up. So you had like Sakutu, Free World, I think, or, or there was another one, Fuel World. Red Rock, I remember Red Rock. Red Rock, Rock like, but, but, they, but yeah. they were different. There was, they were the more expensive ones. And then there was... I should tell you hats. That, yeah. that I, I could afford that were like more rigging systems, like 15 mil poles and clamps and all that stuff that you can now buy so freely that you just could not get from anywhere back then. I mean, yeah, we had, there was no external monitors. So we had the very early thing to do was to stick a magnifying glass, like eyepiece on the back of your camera. And there was no flip out screens and not, so you would just hold the camera up to your eye and look down that and it would magnify it by three times, I think. Um, I don't think there was any focus peaking or anything like that. No, no, no. I don't know how we kept focused. Well, we I don't know how we did. It was always in and out for a lot of the films. But that's only because we were shooting most of the time wide open, which obviously, you know, most films don't do. They like to give their focus puller a chance. I mean, I had a 1.2 50mm lens. Trying to pull focus on that, I think the focus would have been like a few mil. It's impossible. It's an impossible task, but... It just looks so nice. You were like, oh. I remember like, oh man, can you do it? Oh, okay, I got it. I got it. I'll try it because I've got the neck more than this other guy. Oh yeah, yeah, got it. No, out, out, fishing, fishing, follow fishing for it. So we had to slightly end the the previous um, one early because my mic stopped working and it's uh, my current amateurish podcasting live video setup isn't quite there yet so i couldn't uh didn't tell so we've lost quite a bit but we're going to get back onto it we're going to get back into talking about the challenges of working with the 5d you know and how that made us learn about focus pulling you know, aperture um focal length we're going to talk about that you know so mark yeah just talk about i think you know the last point i made that the audience will see is um you know just how we worked with that that small camera and how we were pulling focus um, you know, we didn't understand what a follow focus is for. Um, you know, you only use, we're only using stills, still prime lenses, but still there are still lenses, stills lenses that were never designed to do what we were asking it to do. Let's talk a little bit about how you felt about that at the time. And, you know, where you look back in retrospect of where you went. Yeah. I mean, I, when I look back, I, I realized just how little I knew at the time and just like you said, you know, the kit wasn't really designed for what we were using it for. So the tools weren't created to make that kit work any better. And it was like, it was only after using it for a year that I think, you know, you started to be able to get these rigs that you could build uh, with 15 millimeter bars that had matte boxes and follow focuses and stuff like that you could attach to make the footage, you know, more stabilized and things like that. And obviously we had a problem with I mean, it's a funny story now when we think about it, but we had a lot of resistance at uni. Now, our uni was great, and I had a great time, and I learned a lot, but they were very resistant to us using that technology because they didn't know how to use it themselves, so they couldn't support us on it. So there were things that, you know, like syncing sound. I remember one of the lecturers saying, how are you going to sync sound? And was it you that said, with a clapperboard, like, the old days like they still do today use a clapperboard to sync the sound like and it was you know because we never had to sync sound because you could plug the xlrs directly into those hd 110s 
you didn't ever need to sync the sound. So it was almost like going back to that old, it's like hitting the reset button on technology and going back to how they used to do things by recording sound externally and syncing, by rigging the camera up with tools to help you use it better, you know, things like that. There was no external monitors. So we had the Zakutu eyepiece that you would like, that you literally stuck a frame onto the, the back of the camera and it was a bit of magnifying glass that you looked down, which magnified the image to three times because you couldn't, they didn't even have a, a HDMI out those cameras. They were never intended really to be used in the way we were using them. So there was no way for you to monitor the, Im the image beyond that little tiny screen. Um, so it was, you know, you were just limited a lot more in, in how you used it. But then gradually over time, that, that technology being used in that way led to a bit, a huge change in the industry, which now we're seeing the benefits of. I mean, obviously they, they didn't create all today's technology, but definitely, you know, those cameras have become like mainstream and, you know, people shoot probably a lot more content on DSLRs these days than they shoot on any other camera. I would say DSLR is probably the most camera that is being used. So, I mean, webcams, like films, music videos, uh, vloggers, documentaries, everyone, you're probably going to have a DSLR of some kind on most productions because it's just an easy thing to pick up and use now. It's a it's got image stabilization built in to get around the fact that those older cameras used to have really bad rolling shutter. So you couldn't really do much movement with them. So yeah. it's the limitations of those things that have led to the amazing technology that we have today and changed how we use it. And it's a big, it was a big revolution. Like it, it really was. Yeah, it, it was. And I, I think the thing we also have to, um, mention is there was a desire to make the film look the film look was conveyed as having it was really they wanted a larger sensor than the three the one third size or two third size chip sensor they had that was you know the traditional broadcast size you know it was cheaper to make lenses for them that had you know more um you know wider focal unless you could have these amazing lenses that got you like eight mil to 300 because it was working from a smaller for a smaller sensor and so you 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 kind of understand that film you know people want you know but people associated that large that depth of field that larger sensor look with movies because most movies we watch you know barring you know obviously there's some that are that were shot in more broadcast cameras but most movies we all remember and love were shot at 35 mil or Super 16. And obviously that was, you know, and I don't know if the depth of field in the originally was what was intended for, you know, when they would first design, um, design celluloid, whatever, 100 something years ago. I don't know if they were like, oh yeah, the depth of field is an important part. I think it was just, we know how to make this chemical process work. And this, and, and a byproduct of this is a more shallow depth of field. But because it's like, this is the only way they could capture a large image like that. And obviously the physics behind you know, capturing to a large space with these kind of lenses that there's light in and blah, 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 the physics. I'm not a, you know, yeah. you know, I'm not a physicist, but you know, the, the math behind it, it made yeah. that image and that magic of that image has been something we constantly go back to. But obviously 
It's not always, it's not always a depth of field that makes what, uh, an image cinematic as we mm. obviously learned over the last 15 years. But I think the the thing about it is it did force the industry, it forced the, it forced the, 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 the industry to move on with the technology because, you know, everyone wanted large, large depth of field. Everyone wanted that look. It wasn't just the look for movies. It was like, you know, if you want to use documentaries and do that, but at that time, it was only 35 mil that could do that, or Super 35 or, or 16 mil, which obviously you saw a lot of documentaries shot in that format because it was cheaper, and obviously the lenses were cheaper as well. But obviously, we know that now. And I, and I, and I go back and I think, sometimes I'm like, wow, we were spoiled in that process because we went from a one-third size chip sensor, which is like that big, to, 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 to full frame, which is you know mm -hmm. that big, over overnight. Yeah. And, and and I'm not at the school of like, oh no, you need to be trained in all of the rituals and processes of the of of camera department and lighting before you can move up to sensor size. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's gatekeeping. You know, is whatever tools you have. But because we didn't know any better, we didn't realize that we were getting an image that was I'm not gonna go as far as say IMAX or whatever. But just the, 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 you know, where we would move the camera, how our, our language and how close we can get with a super, thir with a, sorry, with a 35 mil or a 24, we were using a 24 mil, how we would use a, um, no, we were using a 50 mil, sorry, like how on a super 35, we would use 35 mil. But at the time we didn't know that at the time it was more of a case of we were, we were just doing it to, yeah. you know, get the um get the full field yeah. view right and we're like i'll oh, get the 35 on it or the the 35 and now 35 is what you know 24 yeah, yeah. super or super 35 you know and and i think just that part of the process um was important for us but i think you made a great point i don't know if the you know um depending on whether it, it glitched out or not but you made a great point about we just had a zoom lens and while zoom lenses are great for if you you know being quick and on the move, if they're not great for learning. They're not great for actually learning. They're great for after you're, you know, understand what each focal length is for, what it means, how yeah. it changes the emotion of a picture, you know, once you, you know, but to actually understand, oh, this is what a 24 looks like, or, you know, it's just wide, close, yeah. mid, you know, or sorry, I've done that backwards, but it wasn't really great for learning. And I, I would argue, you know, for framing or whatever, I think it's important to understand the relationship a camera has to have with the actors, yeah. with the performance, not just in terms of the frame you're making, but sometimes where you place that camera can just change the whole dynamics yeah. of a scene. And I think these are things we were learning. Like, we didn't know that's what we were learning. No, I mean, it's like, it is through limitation in some way that you learn some things. So in the limitation of buying a camera where you could change lenses, but I only started with one lens. So it was a 50 mil lens. So I had to move the camera forwards, backwards, you know, wherever I wanted the shot to be. There was no zoom on that. So then when you eventually, you know, you get enough money to branch out or someone borrows you a lens and you get a 28, and you start using that lens and you're like, hmm, people look kind of different on this lens. This lens makes the image feel differently. And 
you start getting the, you start realizing that there's, well, wait a minute, there's two 28mm lenses. What's the difference between those lenses? Oh, there's, there's another lens from another manufacturer. What's that one? Why is that one so much cheaper? And you start kind of realizing how much of a difference these lenses make on your image between brand, like manufacturer, just between the different lenses. And you, you're like, well, this opens up a whole new realm of possibility that I wouldn't have got on that standard zoom lens that is just going to kind of give me the same looking image at varial focal points, but it's not going to change the image dramatically like some lenses do. And you, you know, put fisheye lenses on and you realize, well, that makes me feel really a weird way now that, oh, let me, we've got a really shallow depth of field. That character feels so isolated in, in that image there. Why, why is that? So it's, it's kind of like through trialing these things and realizing the difference it makes that it teaches you how to use it, which is, you know, that it was a great thing at the time. Like having all of these new things available to us, there's no better way to learn, right? Than just getting given all of this new tech and being like, ah, oh, see what it does. Learn. Figure yeah. It out. And, you know, that was a huge part of like our journey, I think, was learning, learning this stuff. And it was definitely what's kept me motivated motivated and what's kept me passionate about equipment is kind of just seeing that progress and being like wow this is i remember this and now we're here and now you know i don't have to spend three thousand pounds on a wireless system to get wireless video oh there's an app for that wireless thing right there i can watch this on my phone like i remember Watches yeah. my tablet whilst I'm. You know what I remember seeing on set once. It was um, working on something for Channel Four and seeing that the director had an like a monitor around his neck, just this little monitor, and I was like, "Wow, that's so cool!" Imagine if you just had a constant video feed. And now I have constant video feed. Anyone, we could have several constant video feeds, and that was something that would again only have been possible on big budgets in Hollywood with Video Village, and now it's like, oh, the production designer wants to see the shop? No, you don't have to come over to the monitor. Just download this app and you can see it right there. You don't even have to leave where you are. Just have a look. And it's it's crazy. It's like, this is amazing. It's, it's fun. It makes filmmaking fun, right? Because you're not limited anymore. You're, you're free to just kind of do what you want. Treat your little short film like a Hollywood feature because all that kit is no longer restricted it's accessible to the vast majority of us and you know going back to what you said no you don't need amazing tech to make a good film like tangerine is a really great film and that was shot on an iphone but if you have really great tech available to you it's only going to make your great idea even better and that's the thing to remember it's never gonna it's not the sole Thing that matters but it it can matter depending on how you use it and it can obviously be a huge benefit if you use it correctly or use it in a way that works for your film like i know correct like i feel like you know that you can figure out how to do things and how things work for you and there's processes and stuff but really I, the thing i love about this is like sometimes when you're trying to do something or get that shot that's really difficult to get just takes like a in little ingenious idea that maybe no one's thought of and and it's fun it's fun to figure out that stuff and try and make things work like yeah that's a so yeah 
tech is, it just makes filmmaking fun sometimes. It makes the process more enjoyable because you're not struggling. You're thriving. It's it's like, it's like um, I don't want to skip ahead, you know, for two podcasts <laughs> from now uh, content. But, you know, we had a situation in one of my previous short films where we we wanted to get a tracking shot on a gimbal. And even saying that, 10 years ago, it'd be mm-hmm. insane, right? You'd have to get like a, I remember using a um, Movi Pro, no, Movi yeah. M10, I think it was, the C300. And oh my goodness, like it was like you had to do an ancient ritual yeah. just to get it balanced. Don't get me started. And then, and then my previous short film, we had like, you know, you had a, I think you had a DJI Ronin 2. Um, or RS, RS, the, RS, the Ronin RS. two. It was the really old one that came in the gigantic pelicase. Yes, yeah, so, so yours, so yours is a, yours is the. It wasn't the top uh, one. It was, it was like the next one down. Was what? Well, yeah. So, and this is we're talking. It's two thousand twenty-one, right? So not even two years ago, um, it was August twenty-one, and. We had like a choice between the DJI and then the Zion Crane. The Zion Crane couldn't take the weight of the pocket. Yeah. That's what we're using. And we had so much issues getting that to work and be able to see an image. It, you know, it was being able to power mm-hmm. the camera, power the, st- we had to, ended up having a BNC cable trailing. It was a nightmare. In the end, it became more of a hassle. And, you know, I would say, I, I'd say, I'll say limited as we had a problem we had to solve. We're like, look, we can make this shot work without it. But if the gimbal was working, I think we would add a slightly different movie because we would have visually, because we would have yeah. done a lot more. But fast forward, 18 months, you have new gimbals that come out, new wireless tech that comes out for mm-hmm. those gimbals. And now we could literally just have it on an RS3 Pro with my camera and just be like, oh, that's what we're using. Okay, pick it up, go, shoot it, come put it down. And that's just two years of the technology. So it's rapidly changing. Who knows in two years from now it will be, the changes will be. But I think just going back and looking about how cameras have changed, I think, and and, and think looking about the, the journey we had, it was just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I think, we, at that point, we were starting to look into, you know, I think Studio Soderbergh was just saw Che, and there was all this talk about this this camera that shoots 4K, 4K, no camera, no yeah, it was a high big deal back then. Capture. No one had 4K. It was, a, it was a massive. It was like, no. no, no one did. I mean, the image is still fast yeah. for now. You know, I mean, you know, you can still use the red one now. At, at yeah, there's still red sun. for a decent amount as well. I've seen him, seen him going been tempted just because i feel like it's a part of history it's almost like i'm not really into cars but i am into cameras i'd love a garage of just cameras it'd be amazing you'd need like a wheelbarrow just to carry it in your house because i think we'll like 50 pounds it's almost like tubular it's like it's got a slot together it looks nuclear almost yeah yeah it's the thing it looks like it looks like it's good as in the game uranium thing in there but i guess a cube of uranium but like the thing about that, it was like I um, went on set in my final year at university, just in a bit of work experience with a short film um, with this you know, director from Manchester, James Statham, really nice guy. Shout out James Statham. 
Hope you're well, bud. Um, and I remember working on the set, and they had a red one. It was a, a, a DP. Um, can I say the DP's name? Yeah, a DP named Phil Wood. Really, t- like, really amazing stuff. He was doing amazing stuff. Um, he still does. I think he's working on big films now. And he had a red one. And I remember looking at the image, and and because I had brought my 5D, and there were some shots where because he was available one day that they did some shots of the 5D, and they used me. I didn't. I didn't shoot it. They like they focus puller stepped up to the camera operator for that shot, and they got it. They kind of just like it was interesting seeing the philosophy of how I shot versus how this experienced camera team yeah. shot with my camera and the results. I think that was a very interesting thing. I'm going to go over on that in a second. But when I looked at that image for that red, I knew it had a smaller sensor size. You know, I think it was, it was Super 35 just about. But the image looked way better than what we had got with mm-hmm. our 5D. But, but, but part of that was, um, you know, obviously, you know, if we just take a for a second, just on the camera, obviously we, I didn't know what raw meant. I mean, we we did, we had, we knew raw photos meant, and you have yeah. to see the difference between a raw photo and the image that's coming out of the the compressed H two six four MP four file that we were getting from the five Ds. But like there was a difference. But that was imagine raw pictures mm-hmm. in every frame of a twenty four or twenty five frame, and the image in that, but it looked. It just looked better. And, but then I started to look around the camera and they were using this big lens. It wasn't a EF mount they were using that we were used to. They're using a, what would they call a PL mount? Obviously, I mean, it's a PL mount, industry standard. But I'm, I'm trying to take you to the mind of, you know, university yeah. level Anderson. And you're going, wow, the, the, these lenses and you hold them, they, they felt so heavy. These uh, Zeiss Super Speeds Mark IIs. But, the, the camera tech obviously yeah, is another level, even what we're using. But then also the workflow. It was, there was the DP, obviously. He was, he, he was his own camera operator, but he had a focus puller and a camera assist. Then they had, you know, um, we'd use sound recorders at Unity. They had sound recorders there. They had an AD uh, production manager, but then they also had uh, production designer. I remember the director would shout, uh, you look at the frame and say, can I get a bit out in the apartment on that? And I was like, What's this art department? And you just see these, is you will come with like their little arts and crafts and starts like messing things up and you just look better. You know, now, obviously, now I know, you know, production designer, that's standard art department. You have an art director, art department, props, all this, you know. But at the time, I didn't even know what that was because, you know, whilst he did a production course, it was more really focused on the um, producing and making a film, not necessarily all those particular genres, which I think they've improved on since but yeah so and it was like the philosophy fascinated me because it was like it's not just the camera it's that they have all these really good people working on set and it almost became a you only really get to use that camera once you have this kind of crew because a camera like we joked earlier it weighed a ton it weighed a ton honestly people moaning about the weight of a flipping ursa Ursa Mini or or even a, even a Red Monstro. Oh my gosh. You try and shoot all day on a Red One handheld. It's not happening. You couldn't. Yeah. You have to have an easy rig. And even then, your lower back still feeling it. And I think, um, but you know, image out of it. But again, it wasn't just, it was the care that went into the image. The care that went into crafting each one of those scenes. 
it was a marriage between the technology and then actually the 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 work. Yeah, I mean the people, people. Well, there wasn't. And those cameras, they were designed to be used by more than one person. You know, Red didn't design a camera with the intention of a single shooter going out and using that camera for documentary work. That camera was a cinema camera and was meant to be used to film, you know, studio-based work, I'm guessing, where you could have, you know, the massive amounts of data it was recording to. Like, us at uni were recording on CFast cards, which I know still are used today, but what were the size of those CFast cards? 16 gigabytes? 32 gigabytes? And that was like, you know, we would have a few cards on set but nowhere near the data that you are getting out of cameras now. I mean, my Red Now gives you, what is it? 40 minutes of um, raw on 512 gigabytes. Like. We had 500. I still have, I just, ironically, I have one of my hard drives from university. Yeah. This is a 500 yeah. gig hard drive. And this has like all my university films on it. I wonder if it still works. All yeah. of that on it. And like that is just essentially a, a half yeah. day of shooting. Yeah, and obviously, if you you're back, you're generating that amount of footage. You need an entire person to make sure that that footage. Something we never did at UD was check the footage. Really, we would like, I guess, we would check the clips were there, but we wouldn't compare file sizes. And there certainly wasn't anything like ShotPut Pro or any of the programs that you could use today to check that stuff. So. Footage was always something that was just a last-minute thing for us. It was like, dump the footage whenever you get a spare second. We didn't have someone dedicated to making sure the most important thing on the set was actually stored correctly, uh, which is obviously a whole department, basically, on a film set to just kind of make sure that that footage is being backed up correctly. And storing it to two hard drives was something I never even did until yes, years I was, later. Oh my god. I was just storing it. Yeah. I mean, I usually would copy it eventually, maybe, if I had the room, but you know at uni I lost I'd lost all of my footage for one of my films because I didn't have it backed up in a se- separate location. And it's you just stuff you don't think about until you get further down the line and you realize Yeah, that, that stuff is is important and that's why there's people dedicated to doing it but i learned the hard way i learned the hard way and lost a bunch of footage yeah you can either you, you bring up an interesting point there just about the respect of those different roles and understanding that they have to be there for a reason now i know filmmaking is it is it is i would say it's massively different but it is different obviously there's a different sub sector of this industry you know there's a bigger low end and mid end than i think there's ever been before but and, and I think within that, you know, sometimes there's a a, a combining of roles because the budget's not just not yeah. there, you know? Look, you know, I'm not going to make my, you know, film that I've been writing for two years because my budget doesn't have money for a DIT. Of course not. You're just going to say, look, can we just build those two roles together? And you're just hoping that they do a good job. Or if you're like me and you're insane for these things, you still take responsibility in DIT, you know, you're directing and producing. But that's just my head. <laughs> Not everyone's going to do that, right? But you, you kind of, you understand why. Because it is literally the most important thing on set, that card. Because if it's gone, you've got to redo everything. And I think the thing that is about respecting the process, and I think the thing that I learned from that film, and then when I worked in adverts a year, a, year, a couple of years later, it is 
very much about the process with the technology, the process of the team, respecting it. You know, yes, it might seem, it might seem a bit basic, but it's like having a person that's literally dedicated to that one job role, make sure it gets done properly. And then you can, you don't have to think about it because then it's yeah. happening properly, you know? And I think that's an underrated part of filmmaking. And again, technology is making that easier, you know, because, you know, we, what we were looking at, we were looking at recording yeah, we were, cl camera yeah. the cloud now, which yeah. is insane. It's insane. You know, it's insane, I, I, it's insane that, I mean, you know. we, like we said, uh, it's not quite there, but it's like where it's heading. And soon, yeah, your footage is going to probably just back up to the edit remotely as you're recording and an editor will be able to start working on that stuff immediately. We're not far away from that. Like, you know, the red has that built in to work with frame IO. I'm sure there's devices out there that you can plug any camera into that will, will do that. And as we go forward, it's probably going to be built into premiere in some way and final cut. Yeah. And you know, if we're at the point now where 1080p doesn't seem to be a problem to do that kind of stuff, then it's only going to be a few years till RAW is just being backed up to cloud. And and yeah, you yet again, the technology is advanced and it's making it easier for you to cover that job role and, and make things yourself without having to have a huge budget. And that's, you know, that's where the, the tech is going to just make it more accessible. Because ultimately, like anyone you know, can go out there and make a film. And I, I, I truly do believe that you don't, you don't necessarily need any experience sometimes. It's just just having something to say and, and surrounding yourself with people who know what they're doing and, and you could come out with something great. I think, you know what, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I, I think we've come to a point now where I think the gate is well and truly open. You know, the gatekeepers can't, say you need to do this, this, and this, and this before you make your film. You know, I, I, I remember her and I couldn't remember where, where I heard it from, but I give my advice to, you know, any, you know, students or people who are looking to break into the industry now to, you know, how do you need a director? And I said, you just have to make films. And it's like, oh no, isn't there a set path? No, no, there isn't. You literally, you just need to make a film, keep making a film. There is, there's no qualification being for being no. a director. You just have to prove it by what you're doing. And sometimes I can seem a little like frustrating because you would love, you know, we all love it. We'd love a mentor to tell us exactly when to do it, when to make the jump, when to do this, how to do it. But when making films, you just have yeah. to keep making them. And then at some point you're going to get a good shorthand and a shorthand isn't always about how we move a camera or whatever. Shorthand means a workflow or whatever, mm -hmm. or a style. And I think that's fascinating to, to, to do because now filmmaking is, is so accessible. You know, I mean, would I go to film? Would I, would I have gone to university now for film now, considering all the resources you have? I think I'd have to weigh it up more now, you know, but obviously there's the contact. Yeah. We have, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, I think, you know, let's move on a little bit, but because I think it'd be interesting. Obviously we talked a lot about when we're at uni. And just that period, it's that period after uni, I think, was quite interesting for us. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. a lot of stuff happened. And, you know, and obviously there was the idea that, you know, the red was this apex camera we all wanted to eventually yeah. work with, work on. You know, tell me, you know, obviously, we're this is 2010, so whatever. 
Ooh, that's so it was it was kind of like we'd got we'd used the 5d now for a couple of years i think and eventually with any tech and especially that tech that wasn't intended for that purpose but had been used as it you you start to feel a bit limited by the tech and you you realize that you kind of want to move on to the next step and you know the next step then was a cinema camera there wasn't anything in between a dslr and a cinema camera um so the only real next step for me was a red scala which was like a fifteen thousand pound camera which was the cheapest one you could get and i took out a loan and put some money that i had towards that camera um just because i wanted to move on i wanted to i wanted to expand and and learn kind of the next the next thing i guess so i remember getting it and it was it was modular modular camera and it was quite big and it came in all these boxes hard cases and i i couldn't even figure out how to put it together back then nothing was assembled it was bare bones don't even think the lens mount was attached so it was like you had to full-on build this camera and put it together and i was working in manchester but my dad had got the delivery at home and that was lincolnshire and after work i drove three hours home to get the camera and then i got up at five in the morning the next day and drove three hours back to to work the next day and we tested it we tested it that night and it was it was just something else wasn't it it was like you it was just a it felt big it felt like it was a big deal to have that camera and to just have this thing that had all these new settings like i didn't even i didn't know what project time base was back then i was like i know what frame rate is but what's time bits and you know, you learn about, or you learn from, well, I learn from. That's really is, being awkward. All cameras are awkward. The time. No, they all have their own name, names for things, but a lot of these settings mean the same thing just in their language, yeah. So, and it's really for me having that and using it and learning with it was, it was just, yeah, that's how I learned. And it was, it was a much more difficult camera to use because you had to have that prep. We one of the first big films I did on it and Anderson shot was a film in London on top of a rooftop and we you know we had a big crew and we had camera assists and DIT to deal with the camera. All of a sudden the amount of kit that you're bringing to these things gets bigger. It no longer fits in a car. It takes a van because the tripod to hold that big camera needs to be a lot more heavy duty than the one that you have because you don't want to put a really expensive camera on top of a 500 pound tripod because then it's gonna it's gonna break no check. and then you've got these lenses now which i think we rented the cp2s for for the so the six speeds yeah zeddies so then they come in a much bigger box and now we've got what uh i think we had hmis blur hmis two two hmis which are big beefy lights because we needed to light outside and it's like up until that point, I don't even think we did use lights outside because the ones at uni weren't powerful enough to do anything in the day. So it was it it basically elevated things to the next level. And you know, I'd I'd left uni then, you'd left uni, and we'd had a bit of experience. I think a year or so in working in various parts of the industry and seeing how different people did it. And then you bring that knowledge to this shoe, and you know, we sh- and it goes to show. We shot that film in 2011, I think, maybe 12. 
Uh, the, uh, 12. the footage looks amazing today. It still holds up, and it still would be reusable, gradable. Perfect. There's nothing out of that camera. And that's where we're at now, I think. I mean, that's where we've got to. We've got to a point where basically everything looks great. You know, most cameras now are going to look great. They just are, because that's the standard we're at now, where you know you don't need a red to... And there's a lot more choices in between a red now. And different... It's not just... It's not just us, it's it's like the industry that's kind of wised up to what it wants or what it did dictates we need. And that has become, you know, the Netflix camera hot list, which I don't think is a is really a good thing. I don't know why Netflix need to dictate. Surely it should be content. I've, not- I've heard I've heard rumors I've heard rumors that there's ex red employees that work at Netflix. Do you know what? Why? Yeah. Which I would be surprised. And they're never gonna turn down your film if it's good. You could have shot it on an iPhone. They will not turn it down because of that list. Because a camera doesn't dictate a good film, ultimately. So, and every, like, you know, we are at the point where, yeah, your iPhone looks great. And it's only going to get better and better the more things go on. And, you know, it's not, I'm not saying go and use an iPhone and don't get a better camera. But it's like, if you can't get a better camera, then use an iPhone. Don't let it stop you. Like, get out there and do something. Because I think you said... No, it's not done. We'll, we'll, we'll watch it. These days, people will watch your content. We'll, we're, we're more accepting of what, like... Everything looks better, but we're also, you know, with the introduction of YouTube and stuff, user-generated content is way more acceptable. People are just way more willing to watch what you make. That it doesn't need to necessarily be big. So... It doesn't need... It doesn't need a... There's a new validation, you know, you sometimes you make an audience. I mean, you know, right now I'm literally just finishing two films. One that's taken way longer than it should. And the other one I shot, we shot last year. Um, I shot that, you know, two different kind of films. And I'm, as I'm finishing them, you know, yes, I should have come with a festival plan beforehand, blah, blah, blah. They're self-funded so I can do what I want. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is, it's like, should I just put these online? Should I, or should I? You know, should I go to the festivals and not let anyone see them for another couple of years? Remembering I own all the rights. Yeah, for them. So it's like, well, why, why am I making it? You know, it's something as a as a battle yeah. I have going on. But you start to look at some of the views that some of the chat YouTube isn't a YouTube isn't just it's not a style of video anymore. People say, oh, make a YouTube video as in a short clip. No, YouTube is a yeah. full platform. We have to think of YouTube as a not even a tv channel because everyone has a tv there's a there's a couple of there's five six hundred million yeah. tv channels on youtube youtube is literally it's a network a platform it's a just network it's a it? network it is it is a network and i think you know because of these new distribution channel you know channels there's obviously so much more content yes it's brought the price of that content to be made down it's had to because there just means more of it and you know obviously you, you know we could have a separate discussion um, about the the how so much content has brought standards down, which was inevitable. But I think you know, going back to that time, it was so exciting. You know, I, I had worked in adverts for a bit. I had worked on Red. Um, I didn't shoot. I was AC and on Red a few times. You know, getting used to the workflow somewhat. Um, and then obviously you 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 got in. A, you know, we heard about the Red Scarlet and it was like, whoa, the Red One, but cheaper. And I think it was obviously they're moving on to their DMC2 um, yeah. bodies and stuff. 
that were meant to be the whole modular thing and whatever. And the, you know, there was a wep epic weapon and then there was a scarlet. No, there was no, no, sorry. Scarlet it was an yeah. epic dragon and the scarlet dragon. Because you had the epic. I yeah, didn't. I actually, so I had the scarlet. The dragon wasn't a thing until, and the epic dragon wasn't a thing until after I'd bought it. And then they released an upgrade that you could pay, I think it was six grand for, and they would replace the sensor inside of the camera. And they they did that. They offered that on both the Scarlet and the the Epic, and that's when it became the Epic Dragon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, that was there that was the thing there are they were advertising that they would be able to do. What you think of when you look back, that's kind of that's really I know we've kind of all soured off red at one point but when we actually think about what they did for the industry and what they forced sony to yeah. do really i think it was really important because sony was never going to give us a user interchangeable sensor i think they did with the f5 and f55 but that was a bit different yeah. that was a one-off they would never make a system where it was completely modular there was your highlight camera use it till it falls off you know falls apart and then you buy another you buy you know, you buy the next model up or they'll make an incremental yeah. change and it's a completely different model, which I know Sony has a great rep now because their marketers and strategists are amazing. But it's kind of, you know, it's kind of rubbish that they kind of hamstring their cameras on purpose. So you have to spend another yeah. spread to get the one up from it when you know there's a <laughs> camera that could do all the things you need it to do. But again, that's another story for another day. Well, I think like, the thing is, yeah, the philosophy that the equipment made us bring on set with using more of that stuff was that we had to approach it more professionally. It was, we, we did approach it like it was a digital negative. And when I say that phrase, I mean, it was the care and thought, you know, is that scene acted, uh, you know, uh, we blocked it out. We didn't call it blocking then, yeah. but, you know, that's what, obviously what we were doing. You know, is the lighting right? What time of day is it? You know, can we run through this again? There was much more than just, let's get the camera, get an explosion and shoot. You know, which to be honest, yeah. we were like, because we yeah. didn't know any better. But now as we, we started to craft this, and, and again, the technology and, and seeing that, you know, we've got to rent these bigger things. we got to, 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 it's a bigger tripod, bigger curtain here. Okay, to actually move the camera, I need more people. Thereby, okay, I'm gonna, and once you start getting more people, and yes, there were friends doing favors, whatever, but because there were so many people working on it, you're like, okay, then the idea, we have to make sure this idea is good. We have to make sure we getting the right thing. Cause I can't ask these people to come back tomorrow because there is no tomorrow. It's only today with the film. And so that has a, that has a, a quality of, because you're mentally preparing mm -hmm. better because you know, there's all yeah. the pressure. The film becomes a much better film yeah. in the end of it. It's really interesting that process, but. Yeah, uh, yeah, like you said, it's it's that, you know, if your films, what motivated us was that our films were starting to look like professional films, which then motivated us because our the way they looked got better. We wanted to make the other aspects of the film better because there was not as much holding us back. The gap between our films and Hollywood films was getting smaller. So it was like, we can do this we can make stuff that is genuinely cinematic and people are viewing it in that way and they're surprised by it and shocked by it and it's and it motivates you because you're not being held back 
And with all this new tech, it means people aren't being held back, which means that they're motivated to make better content. And ultimately, so technology really is just, it's, it's helping you, it's motivating you to want to improve every aspect of the film. That's, that's how I look at it. What would you say, but obviously then you came to a point, um, you came to a point where it's like, okay, I've got this equipment now. I've got this camera. I've, you know, technically got it, no idea yeah. how it works, but I still, there's something else I need. I'm not sure what I'm missing. There's something else I need. Do you know what, what I, did you come up? Yeah. Uh, I think when I got that camera, I was, I was probably not ready for it, but there was nowhere else to go. It was a DSLR or, or nothing. So you realize that the things that make that camera great, a great cinema camera, are the things that make it or made it at the time a negative do everything camera. It wasn't designed in that way. It wasn't something that I could just take on shoot and shoot an interview for a, a company because the data I was giving them was re was you know a hundred and something gigabyte because I couldn't. There was no other formats built into that camera. It was it was raw or nothing. And if you you could shoot 1080p, but you'd crop the sensor, so the image wasn't as nice. So that camera had a very specific use and the camera that I needed needed to have a more varied use and, and that just wasn't invented yet. And it, it was only really probably a few years after having the red that more cameras started. They're, they're, the gap between DSLR and cinema camera was bridged and Sony started releasing cameras and Blackmagic started releasing cameras and you had this big influx of cameras that were designed to be the in-between camera to bring cinema cameras to the budget filmmaker. And really that's, that's what I probably my next step should have been. It should have been something like, you know, black magic or something, something smaller than a cinema camera. But I, I feel like that's, you know, if you look at red, uh, red's lowest cost camera now, it's designed to be an every camera. It's not designed to be just a cinema camera because the industry was still also figuring this out as we were figuring out. So we then they were figuring out the need at the same time I was figuring out the need. So it just took a little while for it to catch up, really. And I think the other thing is obviously that there's your point about your point about obviously the specific purpose it had versus um you know the do-it-alls because i mean you know to this day there's still not a do-it-all camera mm. we all know what we want out of our yeah for yeah camp, for sure but it was just that usability you know but like in terms of it was it was risky to, it was ballsy mm. of me to get it you know because the, the you know it wasn't like you were shooting high-end no. commercials yet you know it was it was like, I'm still, this is what I want to do. And it was quite impressive. And you made it work, you know, but I, I think the thing that, I, you know, obviously at that time I was working for a company, but we started to talk about Fuzzy Duck, but I think, you know, the company had to make a decision about what camera we would get. And that was a really important thing for me because, you know, it was, once we buy a camera, once the company buys the camera, we're not going to really rent a camera. We're only going to use a camera that we own 
or that the DP that we're hiring or the camera operator we're hiring and he's using. And so that was important for me to make sure that they got the the best because it was like, well, this is the camera I'm going to have access to for the next mm -hmm. five years, really. Um, and I think, you know, Sony, Sony had already started to think the F3 yeah. before, um, but not very many people did it. It was a bit of a weird one. The codec was still a bit eh because it was um, 35 MBS uh, megabits per second, sorry. And I think the broadcast standard at the time was yeah. 50 megabits. So the fact that they made one with 35, people were like, well, what was the point? Like, you just made like a Super 35 camera that could only yeah. use on corporates. You can't use it on TV. So they went back to the drawing board, scrapped it, and then obviously made the F5 and F55. And obviously the FS7, which, you know, as everyone yeah. took over the world, even though <laughs> I looked like it. The, it, it just, I just, I didn't like it at all. I just thought that camera is the epitome of, ugh. And I'm not going to go there, but I, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Right. It was the same sensor as the F5, which is what we, we'd, um, which is what I'd, I'd suggested the company gets. That, for me, that was, that was the best value camera, I think, up to that point ever made, I think. And I know that might sound dramatic, but the fact is we could change mounts. It could shoot everything from um, 50 MBS. Yeah. 35 megabits per second in a MXF wrapper all the way up to, at that point, it couldn't do the 4K. So maybe the F55 would have been better. But the F55 could do 4K XAVC, which is the internal codec, which everyone knows now because everyone has flipping A7Ss. Yeah, yeah. Five, you know, F FX3s and FX6s. But like the versatility, and then you could crop in the sensor, still have 1080p. You know, you can have two lenses and one lens. Yeah. You know, but that camera wouldn't have been the right camera to learn on it was a camera that you that for me you had to you know what you were shooting first yeah for you and and got used to your workflow first and obviously that camera i put it in situations where it was on a commercial documentary loads of loads and loads of corporate event stuff it wasn't too heavy really liked it but the thing it lacked was what the red had which is what the raw internal footage i think you had a recorder you get in the back the R5, I think it was called, that you put on the back and you, you could get raw out of it. But it didn't work. Say it didn't, it didn't work in the same way that Reds were. Yeah, yeah. But like, it was weird because I never saw that as a camera that was exciting to make a film on. I know that's, looking back, that was really stupid. You know, it was a Super 35 sensor, really good, not really jello-y footage, solid, always worked. But I just never got impressed to like, let me go out and make a film on this. Yeah. Because I always talking back in my mind, well, you know, my, one of my best mates has a red. He always shoots my films. We'll shoot on that. Or, you know, or eventually I'd love to shoot something on Alexa. It was always something, it was weird, but, but, it, but the, and I think, obviously, you look back at your own journey, you think that was just your going through maturing as a filmmaker mm -hmm. because you were still not mature because you would have just said it's a camera with a Super 35 sensor that could go to PL mount, yeah. has internal NDs. It was freaking... It had everything. Just yeah. shoot your darn movie, you know. Um, but you, you you live and you learn, and I think, but like Sony got forced into doing this camera. It got forced because people were putting big lens adapters on the front of their EX3, which yeah. the company had over it. These things, the way the camera like that long. Flip it upside down or something? Oh my goodness. It was like, get to mount <laughs> the camera upside down. Just to make it work. It was mental. And so they got forced into doing it. 
they tried the first time and people didn't like it and then they tried again and then it was one of the most successful two successful cameras well f55 was the most successful one but it was also twice the price yeah that global shutter so it was interesting it forced but again that was out to the red and what canon it did and yeah. forced everyone in there and it brought a different look to corporates because before you know the films even shot <laughs> can you look like shot in the extra Exactly. With a five, with a with a seventy or five yeah. B camera, it was like, uh, you know. And I was working at adverts just before I worked at Fuzzy, and so you're seeing all this stuff on Alexa with Cook Prime, yes. And then you come and you're like, oh, seven D and the X three. So getting that F five, and it's not the fence. It was just, you know we're talking about commercial versus you know yeah of course not really fair no um to the comparison, but like then the opportunity made the to get the F5 came up, got it, and it just, if for me, you know, and again, uh, you know, reliability, whatnot, you know, I could sing my praises about that camera. Everyone who knows me knows I go on about it. But, you know, again, it had finally, it was the point where the industry caught up to what we wanted it to, and it now had just become an everyday tool. Yeah. You know, and what is this, 2013, I think we're talking about? I think so, 2013, yeah, it would have been about. So, yeah, there was the introduction of, still quite expensive, though. I think the F5 was like their budget. Was it the F5 one or was it the FS5? Which one was the cheaper one? So the FS5 was the cheaper one, like that was for like, hey. That was a tiny one. Which is nothing wrong with shooting weddings, yes. Yeah. Nothing wrong with weddings, but it was a wedding better on the camera. Then you had the f5 which was like the 12 grand yeah so that's getting towards like the red cost basically exactly yeah and so like then you had the f55 at 20 28 29 and that was like yeah cinema whatnot and now what we got we've got the fx6 which is like their new standard which is apparently amazing and that's priced at what five and a half grand so now we've got the camera that's considered kind of not the top end, because they've still got the obvious top, top ends. But, like, this is considered, you know, the ones that you would use for Netflix documentaries and stuff like that. And it's priced at six grand. So that gives you an idea of where the standard of, like, I guess, TV and, like, documentary and some cinema and stuff has come down in price to have that cinema standard camera. And that is what a lot of people are asking for on jobs like the the FX6 and stuff, and before that it was like the FS7. Was it the F, not FS7, the FS7? Yeah, FS7. FS7. So it's, it's, you can see now that like that price is almost halved to get what is considered to be a good camera, not the, the B camera, the good camera. So six grand, you couldn't, what, what could you have gotten in 20, what year are we talking about? 2013 for six grand that would do all that. Maybe the C. When did the C three hundred come out? That, that was even that was even nine grand. Because yeah, I only know this because I did extensive research on the two. Yeah, and then the FC five hundred. It was still nine grand. It was still nine grand. So it didn't exist. This price range that everyone's moaning about. Sorry, not moaning, but every you know you you see a lot of discourse about oh this needs to be cheaper. This is more expensive. Or why doesn't it have this? It's like oh my word, it's like this used to cost. 20 grand for the pretty much the same level of camera or this equivalent level 20 grand and now you're getting it for five or six and you're complaining 
just you know i don't think they're real i don't think i just think they're just i don't i think they just watch youtube all day and i think it's the it's like the dslr thing isn't it it's like it's because dslrs now are so good that if you are making a camera that costs three times the price you better tell me what makes it worthwhile and those things that those dslrs do and that gap between that cinema camera and that dslr is getting even smaller now to the point that it's like well soon we're i mean some of the sony cameras now this like the standard some of the ones that netflix approved are dslrs right you can shoot on a dslr it's netflix approved now so it's like if you're going to be jumping up in price then it's going to need to wow me somewhere it's going to need to do some kind of magical thing that you can throw at me in advertising to tell me why i need to pay six grand rather than three but you know what that's interesting because i think what we're coming back to and again we're going to probably come back to this and you know in a future episode the thing that i think is interesting is how we move back to uh can you bring this camera this camera this camera mm. on set now and that it was only a thing at the very high end yeah like it was only a thing where like a stunts or something you, like that yeah no one would complain if you were if you know only you talk to production obviously they rent the camera in most of the time this is 2013 i'm talking 2013 you know you read the camera in because they were so expensive or if you're a dp and you have your own red great but it wasn't like people were saying i'm not going to hire you unless if you were good you were good yeah now we get to a point where it's like you could be good but now people want you see you to have a sony or a red or whatever mainly those two i i'd always argue that or an Alexa, Alexa, let's all, but, but yeah, I mean, I have, that's in its own, that's all its own thing. Yeah. Like yeah. that's the thing you never, that's its own thing. I'd say Alexa still is over there. Yeah. But like definitely on the mid end, it seems people react more to, or you have a Sony and into my mind, Sony's reliable and is, is great, but it blows my mind because it's like, there's some instances where there's better things and people just trust the brand name and they don't really know why. I know I know for stuff in TV, they have a workflow set with time code, you know, all this kind of stuff. I get all that. And their workflow is based on speed. But when you're seeing people in like the low end saying FX6 only or FS whatever only, and it's like, huh? Yeah. It just, it, just, it should matter. It's just an image. You know, maybe it's color grading workflow or whatever, but there's instances now, and again, this is marketing because we have to we have to hold the industry to account because mm-hmm. we can't just let them pull uh, mail it in because they now have a great market share because now because every production has Sony, everybody buys a Sony. So if you don't have a Sony, people almost look at you like it's a strange thing. Which is insane. It's insane to me because it just Sony we're not seeing as a cinematic camera. I'd even argue the F fifty five wasn't really seen that way. I know they use a lot of Netflix stuff, but you weren't seeing a loss for a lot of music videos or short films or anything like that. You yeah. know, it was like, oh, they were shooting a BBC drama, whatever. But you never see an F five asked for specifically on a job. On you know, an FS seven maybe, even though they were lower end because of like it's. But that was because loads of people bought it. 
So then everybody used it. And so then it became, well, you have to have it. It's like, oh, there's, there's better options out there. There's better options out there, but you're telling me I have to use this now because it's popular. And it's just crazy how it's went that way because, again, it's so accessible. I think it's, you know, again, I could write a dissertation about this, but it's just <laughs> interesting how we've come back on ourselves about it. And it'll be interesting to see what the next disruptive thing is. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's probably that's almost a good place to kind of tie it up because I know that the next thing that we're going to talk about, like the next step in my journey when it came to camera is is obviously such a big a big one and I, I know we've got a lot to talk about with that because that camera that I got after my red really did feel like it was it was thinking about all the ways I was going to use this and it was trying to be a camera that could cater for all of those uses and it's probably my favorite camera up to date and and I think yeah I think we've got a lot to say about those cameras we have got a lot to say about that company when we get there, yeah. but we're going to, we're going to wrap it up here now because I think, um, we've gone on long enough for our first pod. Yeah. Got you guys still listening now. Thank you for listening. Um, Mark over to you. Yeah. I mean, I think as we go forward, you know, tech is going to be a big thing that we talk about. Um, and new technology is always coming out. So, and I've, you know, we're always trying new tech out and stuff. So. Definitely, I think, keep coming back if you're interested in tech, film tech, because we're definitely interested in talking about it and using it. 100%. So, guys, thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to like and subscribe, um, and we'll see you on the other side. Peace out.